0: Kind to machinery? No, not for me. Quite the contrary. For me the experience of sequencing the human genome and uncovering this most remarkable of all texts was both a stunning scientific achievement and an occasion of worship. Many will be puzzled by these sentiments assuming that a rigorous scientist could not also be a serious believer in a transcendent God. This audiobook aims to dispel that notion by arguing that belief in God can be an entirely rational choice and that the principles of faith are in fact complementary with the principles of science. This potential synthesis of the scientific and spiritual worldviews is assumed by many in modern times to be an impossibility, rather like trying to force the two poles of a magnet together into the same spot. Despite that impression, however, many Americans seem interested in incorporating the validity of both these worldviews into their daily lives. Recent polls confirm that 93% of Americans profess some form of belief in God. Yet most of them also drive cars, use electricity, and pay attention to weather reports, apparently assuming that the science undergirding these phenomena is generally trustworthy. And what about spiritual belief among scientists? This is actually more prevalent than many realize. In 1916, researchers asked biologists, physicists, and mathematicians whether they believed in a God who actively communicates with humankind and to whom one may pray in expectation of receiving an answer. About 40% answered in the affirmative. In 1997, the same survey was repeated verbatim, and to the surprise of the researchers, the percentage remained very nearly the same. So perhaps the battle between science and religion is not as polarized as it seems? Unfortunately, the evidence of potential harmony is often overshadowed by the high decibel pronouncements of those who occupy the poles of the debate. Bombs are definitely being thrown from both sides. For example, essentially discrediting the spiritual beliefs of 40% of his colleagues as sentimental nonsense, the prominent evolutionist Richard Dawkins has emerged as the leading spokesperson for the point of view that a belief in evolution demands atheism. Among his many eye-popping statements, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Faith, being belief that isn't based on evidence, is the principal vice of any religion. On the other side, certain religious fundamentalists attack science as dangerous and untrustworthy, and point to a literal interpretation of sacred texts as the only reliable means of discerning scientific truth. Among this community, comments from the late Henry Morris, a leader of the creationist movement, stand out. Evolution's lie permeates and dominates modern thought in every field. That being the case, it follows inevitably that evolutionary thought is basically responsible for the lethally ominous political developments and the chaotic moral and social disintegrations that have been accelerating everywhere. When science and the Bible differ, science has obviously misinterpreted its data. This rising cacophony of antagonistic voices leaves many sincere observers confused and disheartened. Reasonable people conclude that they are forced to choose between these two unappetizing extremes, neither of which offers much comfort. Disillusioned by the stridency of both perspectives, many choose to reject both the trustworthiness of scientific conclusions and the value of organized religion, slipping instead into various forms of anti-scientific thinking, shallow spirituality, or simple apathy. Others decide to accept the value of both science and spirit, but compartmentalize these parts of their spiritual and material existence to avoid any uneasiness about apparent conflicts, Along these lines, the late biologist Stephen Jay Gould advocated that science and faith should occupy separate, non-overlapping magisteria. But this, too, is potentially unsatisfying. It inspires internal conflict and deprives people of the chance to embrace either science or spirit in a fully realized way. So here is the central question of this audiobook— In this modern era of cosmology, evolution, and the human genome, is there still the possibility of a richly satisfying harmony between the scientific and spiritual worldviews? I answer with a resounding yes. In my view, there is no conflict in being a rigorous scientist and a person who believes in a God who takes a personal interest in each one of us. Science's domain is to explore nature. God's domain is in the spiritual world a realm not possible to explore with the tools and language of science, it must be examined with the heart, the mind, and the soul. And the mind must find a way to embrace both realms. I will argue that these perspectives not only can coexist within one person, but can do so in a fashion that enriches and enlightens the human experience. Science is the only reliable way to understand the natural world— and its tools, when properly utilized, can generate profound insights into material existence. But science is powerless to answer questions such as, Why did the universe come into being? What is the meaning of human existence? What happens after we die? One of the strongest motivations of humankind is to seek answers to profound questions And we need to bring all the power of both the scientific and spiritual perspectives to bear on understanding what is both seen and unseen. The goal of this audiobook is to explore a pathway toward a sober and intellectually honest integration of these views. The consideration of such weighty matters can be unsettling. Whether we call it by name or not, all of us have arrived at a certain worldview— It helps us make sense of the world around us, provides us with an ethical framework, and guides our decisions about the future. Anyone who tinkers with that worldview should not do it lightly. A book that proposes to challenge something so fundamental may inspire more uneasiness than comfort. But we humans seem to possess a deep-seated longing to find the truth, even though that longing is easily suppressed by the mundane details of daily life. Those distractions combine with a desire to avoid considering our own mortality so that days, weeks, months, or even years can easily pass where no serious consideration is given to the eternal questions of human existence. This audiobook is only a small antidote to that circumstance, but will perhaps provide an opportunity for self-reflection and a desire to look deeper. First, I should explain how a scientist who studies genetics came to be a believer in a God who is unlimited by time and space and who takes personal interest in human beings. Some will assume that this must have come about by rigorous religious upbringing, deeply instilled by family and culture, and thus inescapable in later life. But that's not really my story. Part 1. The Chasm Between Science and Faith Chapter 1. From Atheism to Belief My early life was unconventional in many ways, but as the son of free thinkers, I had an upbringing that was quite conventionally modern in its attitude toward faith. It just wasn't very important. I was raised on a dirt farm in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. The farm had no running water and few other physical amenities. Yet these things were more than compensated for by the stimulating mix of experiences and opportunities that were available to me in the remarkable culture of ideas created by my parents. They had met in graduate school at Yale in 1931 and had taken their community organizing skills and love of music to the experimental community of Arthurdale, West Virginia, where they worked with Eleanor Roosevelt in attempting to reinvigorate a downtrodden mining community in the depths of the Great Depression. But other advisors in the Roosevelt administration had other ideas, and the funding soon dried up. The ultimate dismantling of the Arthurdale community on the basis of backbiting Washington politics left my parents with a lifelong suspicion of the government. They moved on to academic life at Elon College in Burlington, North Carolina. There, presented with the wild and beautiful folk culture of the rural South, my father became a folk song collector, traveling through the hills and hollows and convincing reticent North Carolinians to sing into his presto recorder. Those recordings, along with an even larger set from Alan Lomax, make up a significant fraction of the Library of Congress collection of American folk songs. When World War II arrived, such musical endeavors were forced to take a back seat to more urgent matters of national defense, and my father went to work helping to build bombers for the war effort ultimately ending up as a supervisor in an aircraft factory in Long Island. At the end of the war, my parents concluded that the high-pressure life of business was not for them. Being ahead of their time, they did the 60s thing in the 1940s. They moved to the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia.